Well, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12 with me. Luke chapter 12. And as you do so, just a reminder, as has been already mentioned, today we're not only recognizing our veterans, but also <clears throat> the persecuted church. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember, remember them who are in bonds is bound with them, and those which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. And so this morning, I think Ben made a good connection. Because of the men and women who have sacrificed for our freedoms, we have the ability to, to worship in freedom. But our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world do not have this freedom. Many of them are paying very dearly for their faithfulness to the name of Jesus Christ. And so it's important to remember them throughout the year, but especially on a Sunday like today, when our attention is called to that. And so, uh, please stand with me as we read Luke chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 21, and then we're going to be praying, and we'll conclude in our prayers, our prayers for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world who are suffering for their faith. Verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And those things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word. May our hearts apply it this morning. Let's pray. And Father, this morning, what, a, what an appropriate passage for us to come to. What a contrast exists in the lives of the people in this room with the lives of your brothers, of your saints in other parts of the world, our brothers and sisters. And Father, in our ease, help us not be deceived. Help us not be rich toward ourselves and poor towards you. Father, we pray for those who are enduring persecution. We pray for those in Kazakhstan who have had new rules placed on them about how they can worship and what churches can worship and the rigorous process that churches are going to have to go through to have the opportunity to, to be churches. We pray for Chinese believers like Liu Xiong, who was put in prison for supposedly harming society, but actually proclaiming the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. We, we pray for Somalian believers like Hassan, a, a 25-year-old who was beaten, knifed, and left for dead in front of a church. We we pray for Iranian believers like Pastor Yusuf Nardakani. We, we pray for these people across the world whose faith is enduring and whose strength in the midst of persecution 
proclaims the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, to their friends, to their family, proclaims the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, to those who are persecuting them, and proclaims the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, to us as well. Father, we, we are so blessed to have the opportunity to know about these things. And Father, we pray that we would not see ourselves as distant from these brothers and sisters, but we ourselves would, would identify with and, and care for them. Help, as your word says, for our, ourselves to be, to be bound with them. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Again, praying for your illumination on our text this morning. Your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in a time of economic unease, like our country's facing right now, it's, it's tempting to believe that things are the, the worst they've ever been. There's kind of a, a general feeling of, of angst about the economy, and, and in our, we know it's not true, but as we undergo this angst in our economy right now, there can be a sense that, well, boy, these are the, the worst times have ever been. Now, we know in our minds, I hope, that we're living right now better than 90% of the people who are alive today, far better if you consider the history of humanity. Our, our economic security is, is more sound than, than most people who've ever been alive. And yet, in this time in our country's history, there's a, a feeling of, of angst, like things are, are uneasy. We lack security. Such has always been the case, of course. There's nothing new that our country is undergoing right now that hasn't happened in the past. In fact, I was reading a, a very interesting book by Niall Ferguson. The book is called The Ascent of Money. And what Ferguson talks about in this book is the ascent of money. Is he talks about different components of our financial system and, and talks about how they developed throughout history. In one chapter, he deals with the stock market and talks about the, the first stock market bubble. He introduces you in this chapter to a man named John Law. John Law lived in the late 1600s, early 1700s, and Ferguson describes him as an ambitious Scotsman, a convicted murderer, a compulsive gambler, and a flawed financial genius. <laughs> and in the 1700s, John Law, this compulsive gambler, convicted murderer, this ambitious Scotsman, this flawed financial genius, travels to France. In the 1700s, the French government that was undergoing some great upheavals of its own, the French government places John Law in charge of its economy. And what John Law does in order to help finance the French debt is he starts this company called the Company of the West. And people in France and abroad have the opportunity to purchase shares in this company, Company of the West. And uh, the Company of the West is in charge of developing the French colonies in the New World. And so John Law talks up the French colonies. He tells people in France, look, you have the opportunity to buy shares in the Company of the West, and the Company of the West is going to go to the New World, and it's going to establish this New Orleans, and it's going to establish all these uh, colonies, and you're going to see great profit. You're going to get a percentage of the profits of this company. Now, New Orleans, 80% of the people had died. It wasn't going that well, but John Law paints it like this Garden of Eden, and he's a very acceptable a very effective salesman, and people go nuts trying to buy these shares of stock. They start off being sold for 500 livres, and, and people are buying them and purchasing them, and the value of them continues to go up, and John Law continues to talk up these, these 
shares and more shares are issued. People are selling their estates to purchase these stocks. People are pawning their jewelry in order to purchase these stocks. In fact, the value of these stocks increases so much that it's at this period of time in France that the term millionaire is invented, first coined, first used. So you have all these millionaires, people are selling their other assets in order to purchase these stocks, and then what happens? They, at one point, these, these shares of stock that had been worth 500 livres are now worth over 12,000 livres, and the bubble bursts. <laughs> and suddenly, as people realize what's happening, they try to sell off more and more of these stocks. The value continues to plummet, and everyone's wondering, where is that John Law character so we can kill him? John Law, the Bernie Madoff of his day, has fled the country. Now, for those of us who are Christians, that shouldn't surprise us, right? We know that it's a, a bad idea to put one's security in earthly possessions. That's what Scripture clearly tells us. But for the Christian, now listen carefully to this. For the Christian, the Christian knows that even sometimes successful investments are foolish ones. Let me say that again. The Christian should know that sometimes even successful investments, investments that are successful from a human standpoint, investments that yield large returns, sometimes even those investments are foolish ones. They're foolish ones if they cause one to be rich towards oneself and not rich towards God. What I hope you see as we look at verses 13 through 21 of Luke chapter 12 is that it is a fool, it is a fool who invests in earthly treasure at the expense of their heavenly treasure. Only a fool, this is the main idea that I hope you, you grasp from these verses, only a fool invests in earthly treasure at the expense of heavenly treasure. You see, some fools are spenders. You know that expression, a fool and his money are, are soon parted? It's a fool that goes out and, and spends all of his or her money, right? That's a foolish person. But it is also a foolish person who clings to their money and hoards it and refuses to be wealthy toward God. And what I hope you see as we go through these verses that it is a foolish person, it is a foolish person who is rich toward himself or herself and not rich toward God. Now, before we dive into the text, let me just kind of say something. I get a little uncomfortable sometimes talking about finances for, for a couple reasons. <laughs> One reason, this, just, just to be transparent with you here, just me and my several hundred of my closest friends here, um, I, I benefit from the fact that the church is a healthy church financially. My family is uh, beneficiaries of, of your generous giving. You allow my family to be able to do our ministry full time. And sometimes people who don't know the workings of, of a church might hear a pastor talk about giving and, and make the obvious application of giving to the church and say, wait a minute, this seems like a very, uh, uh, seems like a very biased sermon here. There's, there's some, some real benefit toward a, a pastor talking about giving. Uh, that's not exactly true. I don't get a percentage of the tithing, or I talk about it a lot more often. Um, 
Now, there are, very, there are many unhealthy environments, very unhealthy ministries in which people do profit off the gospel. And I believe the right heart attitude for a person like myself who is the recipient of a church saying we're going to allow you to focus full-time on ministry, I think the right heart attitude for someone like me to have is just great gratitude. And I do. I have incredible gratitude that you allow me to do this as my job. It's, it's, it's hard for me to talk about. I'm, I'm so grateful. And I think the right heart attitude of a church is to say, hey, we're glad that we have the opportunity to provide for people to do full-time ministry. Another reason that I get kind of uncomfortable talking about finances is I know that sometimes in a, in a setting like this, we have people who are new to our church. Maybe you've been here a week, or you've been here two weeks, or maybe a month, or maybe even a little bit longer, and, and you're like, wow, he's already talking about money. That didn't take very long. Uh, for those of you who are guests, that is, this isn't your church home, I hope you understand that, that we are not here. Our church does not exist for you to serve us. We exist to serve you, and, and we ask that you, that you not give to the church until you know that that's what God would have you do. Now, some of you are thinking, now he tells us after the offering plate, <laughs> right? It's all part of the plan. No, uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, in all seriousness, uh, the church doesn't exist for you to give to us if, if you're not a part of this church. We exist to minister to you, and so I hope that you would uh, take that into consideration as you think about how God would have you spend your finances, that first of all, you would know if this is your church home, if these are ministries that God is behind before you would, would uh, apply this sermon in the context of Bethany Community Church. Now, with that out of the way, let, let me dive into the text here. Uh, we, we are a church that preaches through God's Word, and so when we come to Luke chapter 12, verse 13, we preach it, we talk about it, and there are some words here that are very important for the culture in which you and I live. And again, the main thing that I hope you grasp as we go through these verses is that it is a fool who invests in their earthly treasure at the expense of their heavenly investments. Well, let's look at the story. Let's look at the parable here of the rich fool, this rich fool, the parable of the rich fool. And it begins really in verse 1 of chapter 12. Remember what's happened. Jesus has been teaching, and he, as he comes out in this, this countryside, this, uh, this place out in the open, thousands of people come to see him and be around him. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 12, we see that there are so many people that want to listen to Jesus and be around him that they're trampling on one another. And, and Jesus, first, first of all, says a few words to his disciples, and then he says some words to the larger group, and then you have these thousands of people who are gathering around Jesus, trampling on one another, trying to, to get his attention and and say some things to him, and, and experience his ministry. Maybe over here there's a, a woman who has suffered some heartache, and she wants Jesus' words of comfort. And, and over here there's a, a grandmother who's trying to push her way through the crowd to talk to Jesus about her granddaughter who is sick. And, and over here is a man who just wants to listen to Jesus' teaching. He's heard about his wisdom, and he wants to hear about Jesus talking about the kingdom of God and who can participate in the kingdom of God. But right here there's a man who has edged his way to the front of the crowd, and he's a man that has another man by the arm and is pulling him through the crowd. This man and the man that he's pulling through the crowd are brothers. And this man that's pulling the other man through the crowd has a problem with his brother. The law very clearly talks about how inheritance is to be passed from father to sons. A man is to take note of how many sons he has and then add 
one number to that. So if he has four sons, he adds one number to that, he gets five. He divides his property into five portions. The oldest gets two of those portions, and then everyone else gets one portion. Law is clear about how uh, possessions and property are to transfer. And this man who's bringing his brother through the crowd believes that he has been wronged by his brother. We don't know what exactly has happened, but for some reason, this man believes that his brother hasn't rightly divided the father's inheritance with him. This isn't a little deal. How this property transfer takes place could mean a drastically different life for this man. If his brother doesn't give him the property that he's entitled to, his life could be very difficult financially. In fact, perhaps he could live on, have a sustenance living. But if his brother follows through with the plan and gives him the inheritance, then he's comfortable, he's set. His family's set. There's security. This is a big deal. This isn't some minor issue. This is like having a job and not having a job, having an inheritance and not having an inheritance. And so it is vitally important for this man for someone to talk some sense into his brother and force his brother to do the right thing. And so he works his way through the crowd, these thousands of people trampling on one another. He works his way through the crowd. In verse 13, from the crowd, he yells to Jesus, Teacher! Teacher! Hey, tell my brother, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me, to give me my portion of the inheritance. Jesus turns to the man, the text tells us, verse 14, And he doesn't address the issue that this man is so passionate that Jesus addressed. Jesus looks at him and he says, look, man, who made me the judge or the arbitrator over you? Over you too, you there is plural, it's the text is y'all. Who made me the judge or arbitrator over y'all? The man, his hopes were perhaps crushed there for a moment. Oh, I really thought Jesus would tell him something different here. I thought Jesus would see how important this issue is to me, how important it is to my family, how important it is to our well-being. I know Jesus likes righteousness. I know he talks about justice. I, I thought this would be a pretty big deal to him. Maybe his brother's grinning a little bit. We tried. And then Jesus looks at the larger crowd, the larger group, and he addresses the heart issue. Because, you know what? There's something more important than whether or not a person is impoverished or not impoverished. Of far more danger to this man, it's hard for us to believe it, but it's true, of far more danger to this man it's the spiritual danger of greed than the physical danger of poverty. Jesus looks at the larger group and he, and he says, look, take care, watch out, be on your guard against all types of covetousness, of all types of greed. Watch out, be careful. Here's an example. 
Jesus is able to ascertain the hard attitude of this man, and he understands that there's something deeper going on spiritually in the life of this man than just the, the physical problem that the man is facing. Look, he says, watch out. Even when you're in the right, watch out against all kinds, all forms, all types of greed and covetousness. The word that Jesus, is, Jesus uses there that the ESV translation that I'm reading from translates covetousness. Some of your translations read greed. The word he uses there is the same word Paul uses in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And then he says, and covetousness, same word Jesus uses here. Covetousness, which is what? You know what he says? Covetousness, which is idolatry which is worship of a false god. He says the same thing in Ephesians 5, 5. He says, anyone that is covetousness, that is an idolater, a worshiper of a false god, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This word covetousness, this word greed, means to believe that one has a right to more than is one's due. It means insatiableness, wanting more and more and more. And Catch this, a person that wants more and more and more and has an insatiable desire for the physical things does not have a desire for God. Covetousness, desire, insatiable desire for the physical things of this world cannot coexist in a heart with worship of God. And Jesus sees this guy with a legitimate legal complaint and says there's a bigger heart issue here. It's far more dangerous to have a heart of covetousness than to live in poverty. Watch out, he says, be on guard for all kinds of covetousness. Why? Why does he say you should be on guard for that? Because one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. That's a concept that I say, you know, I say these words and our Western minds take them in one ear go blah, 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 and stick them out the other. It's hard for us to grasp what Jesus is saying here. The the, The quality of one's life, the meaning of one's life, does not lie in the abundance of material things in the financial security that this world offers. And so Jesus tells this parable to illustrate what he's saying. He says in verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now, a rich man here would have been a landowner that could be like an absentee landowner. He, he owns all these lands. He's rich. He's wealthy. In fact, it's kind of interesting. I was reading some social historians that talk about what this rich man's life would have looked like. Do you know what percentage of the Jewish population would have been classified as this guy? It's kind of interesting in the times we live. He was a one percenter. <laughs> he was the one percent, the top one percent. So this one percenter, this Jewish landowner, is a rich guy. He's doing pretty well, and now this rich man gets even more wealthy. His crops produce plentifully. And that brings us to verse 17. As he goes out and he surveys and he realizes how well his investment has done. Now, by the way, there's no indication that he's done anything wrong to this point, right? It's not like he, he robbed someone to get a better crop or he abused, there's no indication that he was abusing his workers or anything. He, he's a rich guy and a rich guy does even better. And now we come to verse 17 and he's got a problem. He said, it says, he, he thought to himself, what shall I do? 
what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? I have this, this situation, I've got uh, barns that are, can hold this much grain, and I've got this much grain. What am I going to do with that? Now, understand, the dilemma that he faces is a dilemma that every single person in this room faces as well. Every person in this room, unless I'm very much mistaken, has more resources than need. In other words, you have more to help you survive beyond today. You have excess resources. You have more than you need to survive for today in terms of food and clothing. Even those of you who are very young have so many toys, you know, like you need more bins to store your toys. You've got more more stuff than you know what to do with. Those of you who are teenagers have have more allowance or more more pocket money than most people have in the world. Every person in here faces the same question. Okay, I've got X amount of need, and I've got X plus Y amount. Now, the Y may change. The amount that we have in excess may change. But the the people in here are extremely well-resourced. And each of you face the same question. Okay, I've got this amount of need, this amount of resources. What am I going to do with the excess? The man has to make a decision. And what's interesting is the thought process that's going to go into making that decision. See, each person in here, every person in here, goes through some sort of mental calculation to decide what they're going to do with their extra resources. This man is going to have to have some sort of thought process to decide what to do with the excess. I was reading a kind of a study of different cultures, and there are different ways of viewing problems, right? Things about our culture that affect our thought process. I was reading about Micronesian navigators. You know, you can stick a, a Micronesian navigator in the middle of a canoe, in the middle of the ocean around his islands, and, and he can navigate his way to land without any instruments. A, a Western navigator can't do that. And it's said that a Micronesian navigator, instead of viewing islands and stuff as fixed points, he views his canoe as a fixed point, and it's like the waters and the islands move around him. And it's just phenomenal the things that they're able to do in their navigation. It's an interesting thought process that affects their problem of how do I get from point A to point B? Or I am point A, how do I get point A and B to come to me? I don't know how to think. I don't even know how to think about it. And our Western mindset, what do you when we see a problem? Uh, This needs some money. Or if we're kind of individualistic in our culture, we say, you know what, here's a problem. I as an individual need to figure out how to solve this, or you as an individual need to figure out how to solve it. You put someone in a different culture, same problem. They say, look, this is a community responsibility. We as a community need to solve it. This guy has a problem. You and I have a question to answer as well. What do we do with our resources, and what thought processes go into our minds as we think about how to solve that problem? Listen to what he says. This is his thought process. Verse 18, I will do this. Okay, notice the word I, notice the word my in these next two verses. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, 
Now, he's about to use the second person. He's been using first person, first person, first person. Now he's going to use the second person, you, but he's still talking to himself. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. His thought process here, his method of thinking says a lot about the condition of his heart. The thought process is I, me, my. God doesn't enter his thought process. Other people don't enter into his thought process. It's I, my, you, my soul. As we think about the thinking that he's going through here, there should be a sense of unease in our soul as we look at this man and the the thoughts that he's thinking. There's a woman named... um, Joanne Sang, and she wrote an article in the Review of General Psychology, and she, she was talking about people who, during the Holocaust, failed to help their neighbors. She said that kind of an interesting mental process went in their minds. It wasn't like they were thinking about the future and what was going to happen to their neighbors, and they, they didn't think about the past and historical atrocities. All they could think about was the present, and it's like these mental blinders were put on the, over their, their, their eyes, so they, they weren't thinking about anything but the the immediate implications to them. That's what this guy is doing. He's not thinking about all these different options, all these different scenarios. All he's thinking about is, here's more crop than I need. What am I going to do with my stuff? That's his thought process. His goal and his motivation is me, me, me. And then he says this, this is my stuff. I'm going to store it up for myself. And then I am going to be able to what? Eat Relax, drink, and be merry. He describes a common philosophy of the day. It was the thinking that I've earned this, I get to enjoy it. Hard work, I did it, my stuff, I enjoy. Thought process, me, me, me. But then Jesus says, God had some new information for him. Verse 20 But God said to him, fool, you are a fool. Why? Because you forgot about your soul. This night your soul is required of you. And all these things, all these material possessions you've prepared, whose will they be? And then Jesus, as he finishes telling the parable to the people, closes with these words. He says, so is the one, in other words, the fool is the one who stores up treasure for himself and what? Is not rich toward God. It is a fool who invests in himself or herself instead of investing in being rich toward God. That's the story. Let me give you some principles based on the story, some inescapable truths about you and your wealth. Inescapable truth, number one, about you and your wealth is this. uh, Your things are neither good nor evil. Your things in and of themselves are neither good nor evil. In fact, keep your finger in Luke 12, if you would, and turn over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is in the, the T section of the New Testament. And it's kind of neat, all the, you know, all the T books are in alphabetical order there. So it's 1 Tim, uh, Timothy chapter 6. 
And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's, he's talking about wealth and rich people. And then, this is 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 6, he says, Now there's great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. That's the principle we just saw in this parable. But, verse 8 of 1 Timothy 6, if we have food and clothing with these things, we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a, a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Then verse 10, very famous verse, but listen carefully to what it says. For the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and, and pierced themselves with many pangs. In other words, it's not the things themselves that have caused a person to wander away from the faith. It's the, the love of these things, the security, the, the desire for these things that causes a person to be ensnared. Then go down to verse 17 of First Timothy 6. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on what? On God. And then this is a very important verse, part of this verse. Who richly provides us with everything. Why? To enjoy. And so it's not that things themselves are, are good or evil. A person can have lots of things and, and have a wrong or right heart response to them. What's makes them. What makes a situation good or evil is how our, respond, our heart responds to it. So some people say, look, uh, things themselves are good. This might be kind of the, if you just think of like kind of in terms of our culture, the more conservative position. Look, things are good. You, you work for things, you work hard for things, you get things, and that's a good thing. The things themselves are, are morally good. And no, they're not. They're, the things themselves aren't morally good. It's good to work hard. It's good to have a hard work ethic. But but the things themselves aren't good. Now, some people say, well, things themselves are evil, and a person who's rich is evil just by the fact that they have things which are evil, and, and that's not what the text says either. God's Word says that the things themselves aren't good or evil. That's an inescapable truth about you and your wealth. We'll turn back to Luke 12. We see the second inescapable truth from this parable, this story. Number two, you must, you must, you must guard against greed. Greed, all forms of covetousness are, are so easy for our heart to, to fall into worshiping those things. Greed itself is idolatry, Paul tells us. And this desire, this insatiable desire for the things of this world are going to be things that destroy our soul and cause us to worship in this world instead of worship God. You must guard against all types of greed. Some of you are probably pretty familiar with that Occupy Wall Street movement, right? Or uh, someone told me there's also an Occupy Peoria. It's like two guys and a sign or something out on uh, some War Memorial. and It's not going too well, I don't think. But, you know, there, there's two ways of looking at the Occupy Wall Street crowd. And, and, and some of us, I, I think, uh, view that, that movement rightly with, with a lot of uh, concern. It doesn't seem like a movement that's, that's motivated by very godly things. But at the same time, I hope that those of us who are believers who understand God's understanding you know, of wealth would say, you know what, we're not so naive that we believe that the top 1% of people in our country who have a lot of wealth and access to power are using it all for God's glory, right? What does power do? Power corrupts. And a person who has a, a lot of power 
and isn't under the influence of the Holy Spirit, I, I think we'd be very naive to say, no, they're probably not abusing their wealth. They, they probably are. They're probably, many people are using their wealth for ungodly ends and, and not being faithful to use their wealth as God would have them. So you must guard against all types of greed, right? Now, let me, uh, let me show you a little illustration. I hope this comes through. I, I don't know how well this is going to work. Go ahead and uh, show them. This is kind of an interesting graph for us to think about as we think about greed. Now, what that says, I don't know if you can see it, it says 1800. Uh, that's the year, 1800. And then kind of on the bottom corner there, the bottom left-hand corner, there's about 200 countries. Those little circles represent countries. And I, I saw this on a, a blog. Uh, Frank Turk uh, is the author of, well, he, he, didn't, he didn't design the graph, but I, I saw him make commentary on this that I thought was very good. But along the, along the uh, y-axis, you see the number of years that uh, of life expectancy that a country has. And then along the x-axis is the income per person in a country. And what you see is that in 1800, the United Kingdom had the highest life expectancy and the highest per capita income. It was about, adjusted for today's dollars, about $2,800, and they lived about 40 years. I don't know if you can see that, but that's what that graph is representing. And you see that all of these other countries had far less life expectancy or much less income per person. Kind of an interesting statistic. Now, go ahead and go to the next slide, if you would. And here it is in 2010. Now, you see that all the countries have a higher life expectancy than 40 years, and many countries make more than $2,800 per year per person. But the interesting thing to me, for those of us who are in this room, our culture, there'd be different applications for people in different countries. But the interesting application to me is this, this green line and this black line. I don't know if you can tell, but there's a green line right here, and this, this represents the United States' median household income. You take 113 million households, you put half of them on one side, half on the other. Half of them are above this green line, the other half are on the other side. And then this black line, uh, on the right side of the black line, represents 80% of U.S. households, and on the other side represents our bottom 20%. On this side of the black line are 85% of the people in the world. A person who's really ticked off at the top 1% of people in America who have a lot of money needs to ask themselves, how am I greedy? How is the person in Ethiopia supposed to view me? If a person who has the top 1% of wealth in our country is a greedy person, and perhaps they are, what does that say about me when a person in Ethiopia has an annual income of less than $1,000 a year on average? You must guard against all kinds of greed. And the problem isn't that the big, wealthy, fat cats in our country are greedy. The problem is that you and I are greedy. We love things. An inescapable truth about your wealth is you must guard against all types of greed. A third truth, third truth, you must, you must decide what to do with what you've been given. You have an incredible amount of wealth in your hands. The person who makes $25,000 a year starting when they're 25 years old and retires at 65, a million dollars is going to go through their hands. 
$25,000 a year, if you make at least that much, a million dollars is going to go through your hands in a 40-year period. What's going to inform what you do with that money? Remember that guy? What does he think about? I have done this. I will do this. These are my grains, my barn, blah, 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 me, me, me. What's going, to, what's going to affect your thought process as you think about what to do with the question of that extra grain? Is it going to be you know, Bob Brinker's money talk? Is it going to be Dave Ramsey's financial peace university? Is it going to be just laziness? Ah, I'll just put it in the bank or spend it on a TV. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to kind of let it sit and do something. You must make some decision about what you're going to do with your finances. Even no decision is a decision. Fourth truth, fourth inescapable truth about you and your wealth. You must be rich toward God and not lay up treasure for yourself. You are a fool if you lay up treasure for yourself and are not rich toward God. That's an inescapable truth from this parable. Let me give you kind of five thoughts underneath this thought. How do I know? How do I know if I'm being a fool or if I'm being wise? How do, how do I know if I'm being wise and if I'm being rich toward God? Let me give you kind of five things to think about as you think about laying up treasure for yourself versus being rich toward God. First of all, I'm rich toward God. I'm rich toward God, number one, if I don't demand the things that are mine. I know that I'm being rich toward God if I'm not a person that demands the thing, even the things that are mine. You just jot down 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about lawsuits among believers. And he says, look, isn't it better? Isn't it better to be wrong than to, 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 to dishonor the name of God? Now, the person who's not rich toward God says, no, it's better to get what's coming to me. But the person who's rich toward God says, yeah, it, it would be better for me to be wrong. A person who's being rich toward God, if they're not demanding even those things that are theirs, because they understand there's a deeper spiritual battle that's being waged. So often, whenever people have conflict in their relationships, the conflict is about getting what's theirs. This is owed me. This is due me. This is what I deserve. A person who's rich toward God says, you know what? I'm not even going to demand those things that I have a right to demand. That's what Paul did as an apostle. Secondly, I know that I'm being rich toward God. I know that I'm being rich toward God if I know that the things that I have are, are God's, not mine. I know that I'm being rich toward God if I know mentally that the things that I have are, are God's, not mine. Now, a person may be able to kind of say that, but does it work out practically? For example, sometimes we think this way. Well, I'm being a wise steward of my resources, and so I have this thing that I want, and I've saved up money to get it, and because I have enough money to purchase it, it must be the right thing for me to do to buy it. But imagine this. Imagine you put your money in a bank. And you begin to put, you know, $10 a week in this bank. And after six or seven weeks, you come in to withdraw some money. And the bank says, I'm sorry, we've spent it. What do you mean you spent it? Well, we all wanted ice cream one day. And so we took your money and we spent it. You say, what are, you, are you crazy? That's incredibly irresponsible. Ah, uh ah, -uh, we waited until we had enough. We do that with God's money, right? We say, I want this thing and I'm going to be wise with my money. I'm going to save for it. Well, really, it's not my money, right? It's God's money, and even though I have enough to purchase something, it doesn't give me the right to do so. I know that I'm rich toward God when I view the things that I have as his and not my own. Thirdly, I know that I'm being rich toward God 
when I actually implement his plan for his things. In other words, I don't just mentally know that those things are his, but I'm actively engaged in implementing his plan for his things. An obvious question that kind of comes up whenever people are talking about God and their finances or is tithing, you know. Is tithing, is giving 10% of my income to my, my church a, a God-mandated thing? And personally, I don't believe that a tithe is mandated. I don't believe that we are under the obligation to give a 10% to the church. Dramatic pause. Ha, I was just thirsty. However, however, I believe that a tithe is, is a great starting point. You know. I believe that in our culture, a, a person that isn't giving 10% of, of, their, of their finances to the, the money, of finances to the church, runs the risk of, of not being rich toward God because God has provided so abundantly to us. And I certainly encourage people practically to start with tithing and then continue. And fourthly, a fourthly, a fourth characteristic here of a person who's rich toward God is a person can say, I'm generous with God's resources. A person in need knows that I'm a person that they can come to and receive help. And then finally, a person who's rich toward God is a person who's actively living for eternity and not for retirement. A person can say, I, look, I'm living for eternity. I'm not living for retirement. That's not my ultimate goal. That's not my ultimate aim. I'm not setting my financial security. I'm not using my finances wholly to pro provide for my own security, but also for the needs of others. Now, does this mean that a person can't save for retirement? No, of course not. I believe there's, there's good stewardship principles. And I believe that, that God would desire in our culture people to provide for themselves in retirement. But how much? That's a question that a person needs to use biblical principles to think through very carefully. <clears throat> I'm reading a uh, biography. Let me just kind of close with this we think through a very big issue. I'm reading a biography by Steve, a biography about Steve Jobs. Fascinating stuff. On April 1st, 1976, Steve Jobs founded Apple with, with two other guys. Uh, himself, a guy named Steve Wozniak, and a third guy named Ron Wayne. Now, you may have heard of Steve Jobs. You may have heard of that, that second guy, uh, Wozniak, Woz, as he's known. But you probably haven't heard of Ron Wayne. Why is that? Well, the Steves each got 45% of the companies. On April 1st, 1976, they drew up this, these documents, and Ron Wayne was given 10% of the company. Ron uh, was kind of drew up the document. He was going to be kind of the deciding vote in situations that they had. They went their separate ways for a few days. Eleven days go by. April 12th, 1976, Ron comes back to the two Steves, and he says, I want out. I'm nervous. This is a big venture. I'm kind of nervous about people coming and, and, and you know, creditors coming. You guys don't have a lot of money. I have some resources. I went out. They bought him out. $800 initially, I think $2,300 altogether. He's bought out. Today, if he had kept his shares in Apple Company, he would be worth $2.6 billion dollars. Instead, he's living in Nevada, playing penny slot machines and living off Social Security. 
You say, oh, what a, what a tragic decision. Oh, boy, if only he had just been a little braver, made a little better financial decision. Listen to this. Listen carefully. He could have made the decision to keep that 10% in Apple and still been a fool. He could be a billionaire, a billionaire two times over and still be a fool financially because only a fool invests in earthly treasure at the expense of their heavenly one. God's call on you and me is not to make better financial decisions and make more money and pursue wealth. God's call on his believers is to take those financial resources that he has lavished upon us and use them for heavenly investments, for eternal treasure. And the wise woman, the wise man, takes the resources God has given them and uses them for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus, and that through faith in him, we can have life, eternal life, and, and do things for your glory. We pray that you would bless us financially, not for our own glory, but for your own, that we would be able to use the treasures you've given to us to expand your kingdom. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.